welcome. You are listening to the Passion Business Podcast, the podcast for free spirits with a big idea who want to turn their passion into a business. I'm Anke Herman, and I'm your host. My guest today is a leading voice in the world of online courses. I've been following his work for years, and I'm very happy to have him on the show today. He's been featured in or contributed to numerous publications, including the Harvard Business Review, Entrepreneur, Inc., Forbes, Business Insider. He's spoken at places like Yale University and Google, and he's the author of several books, including Teach and Grow Rich, Leveraged Learning, and a brand new book he'll tell us about in this episode. Welcome, Danny Innie. Hello and welcome, Danny. I'm excited to have you here. Anka, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you so much for, for coming and joining us. Um, well, let's dive straight in. Why, won't, why don't you share with people where you are and, and what's your business? Sure. Well, I, I live in Montreal, uh, Canada. I always work from home, but even if I didn't always work from home, right now I would be working from home because <laughs> uh, we're in the middle of a quarantine. <laughs> Um, and that's totally fine for me professionally because I work with people all over the world through the internet, of course. Um, I teach people how to take their expertise and turn it into online course businesses. Very exciting. And especially these days, I think, you know, when a lot of people all of a sudden, you know, realize, well, if, mm -hmm. if I haven't paid attention to this now and now it's kind of the time. And so, yeah, I've been, I've been following your work for quite some time and I'm curious how did you get into that like when you left school online courses didn't exist you know so no when I left school online courses didn't exist um so the way I got into this is um a little bit by accident so um the back back story is that I've been an entrepreneur for I like to say longer than my adult life I quit school when I was 15 to start my first business and so I bounced around I did a bunch of different stuff and in 2007 that was my first kind of big attempt at a you know big software startup company and so I had this idea we were building software that would teach kids how to read and um you know I raised a bunch of money from friends and family and I hired a team and we built a prototype the whole nine yards And uh, it was a cool idea, and we had some good early traction. But, you know, to make a very long story much shorter, I was a very young and very inexperienced CEO in what in hindsight is an incredibly complicated industry. And the timing was terrible because in September of 2008, the markets crashed. And all of that combined to just, you know, implode the company. Mm. And so, you know, it all fell apart all around me. And uh, a lot of my, my investors were friends and family. I wasn't comfortable with them just losing their money. And so I took the losses on myself personally. So I walked away from that with about a quarter of a million dollars in personal debt. And it wasn't just financially. I mean, that was not good, obviously. Mm. But it wasn't, it wasn't financially devastating only. It was also personally very devastating. Mm. Um, for, for anyone who's listening to this who's had a business fall apart all around them, it feels a lot like going through a really bad breakup. Yeah. And after you go through a really bad breakup, you're not ready to start dating again right away, right? <laughs> you, need to, you need to lick your wounds a little bit. Mm. And so that's kind of the position I was in. You know, I, I had to pay bills. I had rent and all that. But, you know, I, I didn't want to start a business involved raising money and hiring people. And, you know, I was, I was looking for what can I do that isn't such a big commitment, 
right? Mm -hmm. What can I do kind of on the side? Um, I was looking for something casual. (laughs) So, um, you know, I I decided I'll start a blog and I'll teach about some of the things I had learned along the way. I've always had the personality of a teacher. I'm good at seeing things and when I understand them and I I can explain them in a way that is easy for other people to get. And uh, it was kind of the right message for the right market at the right time. And it just kind of picked up and it has grown and grown and grown. Here I am a decade later with a couple dozen employees and thousands of students and millions and millions of dollars of revenue. And, you know, sometimes the rebound is the one. But the way I came to be doing the work that I'm doing right now is that um, I, back in the day, like, you know, a decade ago, I stumbled onto a strategy to get some exposure and awareness online. And so as I did that and people started to notice what I was doing, I started to get requests saying, Danny, can you teach me how to do what you're doing? And my answer was, no, that's not my business. (laughs) Um, But thankfully, they kept asking. And eventually I was like, okay, if the market's asking, maybe maybe I should listen. And I created a really simple short course teaching that strategy. And I thought maybe I'd make a few thousand dollars. And I actually made a few hundred thousand dollars in that first year, which was, you know, very unexpected and very nice. And a lot of my students uh, applied what I taught them, and they started seeing great results. And they would come to me and say, now that I know how to do this one thing, does that mean I have everything I need to build my online business? Mm. And I would say, well, no, of course not. Why would you think that? (laughs) There's a lot more to it than that. And so that led to a second course. And we had thousands more people take that course, and that course generated millions of dollars. And within a couple of years, I started to get a lot more requests from my community saying, you know, Danny, I've taken a lot of online courses, and I never seem to get any results from them. Either the instruction is bad, or I never get around to it. But when I take your courses, I get results. I do the work, and I see outcomes. Can you teach me how to build courses like you do? And that was in 2013 that I said, you know what, let's try this. Let's try to teach people how to build and sell courses. And now it's uh, going on seven years that I've been doing it. And uh, we've, we've helped people shepherd literally thousands of courses into the marketplace, which has been just such a wonderful privilege. Wow. And I think for, especially for somebody with, with a teacher's mind, that's just going to be, you know, the most rewarding thing to, you know, to actually see people do, do their own thing. But you know what, what really grabbed me when, right at the beginning when you were saying, like you left school and you just right away knew that nine to five wasn't for you? How did that go down with your parents? And like, how did you, like a lot of people maybe have that kind of idea that, well, you know, this kind of predefined path, that thing, whatever, what you're supposed to do isn't kind of really appealing for me, but to actually not even go that way. How how did that come about? Like, how did you, <laughs> you know, how how did you get away or... or how did you manage to pull that off to actually go and do your sure. own thing right from the beginning? Yeah. So um, I, I wouldn't say that I knew that a nine to five wasn't for me, um, but I knew that the environment I was in wasn't for me. So the backstory to that is that, you know, if you had known me as a child, I was the nerdiest goody two shoes <laughs> teacher's pet kid. Like I was that kid. I was the kid who like finished his homework before going home every day. Um, perfect grades, you name it. And that lasted until about the end of the eighth grade. And then I go into the ninth grade, I'm sitting there in class, and I'm thinking to myself, this is so boring, I can't take anymore. (laughs) And so I cut a few classes, and I came back the following week, and they were still talking about the exact same boring thing. 
And so I cut more classes and it escalated. And uh, I, I'm not a, I don't do things halfway. Mm-hmm. I'm a bit of an extreme personality. So in that first trimester, I missed 152 classes and the number kept going up. And this lasted for about a year and a half. And um, it took a while for my parents to figure it out because I was pretty stealthy about it. Um, but, you know, I'm a year and a half into this and I kind of stopped. And I look at myself in the mirror and I say, you know, Danny, what are you doing? Like, what's the plan here? You know, am I going to spend four more years cutting classes and going to the gym and watching MTV? Like, that is not a good use of time. So I think I'm going to make this official and quit and do something worthwhile with my time. And uh, my dad was not happy about this at all. Um, my, my dad is, um, my, my dad has the risk tolerance of an accountant. Let's just put it that way. Um, and so this was a scary proposition for him. Um, my mom didn't have a great experience herself in high school. Um, she had a much lower opinion of the value of that experience. And so her perspective was that as long as I'm doing something constructive with my time, you know, that's fine. And, you know, in a worst case scenario, and, and to her point, she was right. In a worst case scenario, you can always go back to school. And so, you know, I, I'm not at all in favor of someone dropping out, flunking out of school, but intentionally opting to do something else, I think can be a very good choice. And it's a very reversible one, if that's the direction that, that they end up having to go. But so that's kind of where it started. Um, would you, should I, would you like me to share kind of what my first business project oh, was? Oh, I would love to. I was going to ask you anyway. <laughs> all right. So, cause it's a good story. Um, so I quit school. It's official now. I'm like, all right, what am I going to do? And, um, I had no skills whatsoever cause I was 15. Um, but I knew a little bit of HTML and anyone who knows a little bit of HTML knows that that doesn't mean much. <laughs> That's knowing very little. <laughs> Um, but I thought, I know HTML, maybe I can build websites. So I go door to door to all the stores in my town, and I go into the store, and I talk to the person at the counter, and I ask them, do you need a website? And I do this for like a month. And this is how naive and inexperienced I was. I didn't even realize that the clerk at the store is not the person who makes that decision. <laughs> so that goes nowhere. But a couple months later, I'm sitting at a friend's house, and we're playing one of these educational computer games with his little sister. And, you know, we're looking at the screen she's playing and my friend says, you know, this looks pretty simple. I'll bet you could build something like this. And I tell him, you know, I'll bet I could. I don't know why. I had none of the skills I couldn't have at the time, but I'll bet I could. (laughs) So I find the box for the game. I call up the company. I get a meeting with the CEO. And this is one of those things that in hindsight, it's like, how did I get a meeting with the CEO? But at the time, it just, it wasn't, it didn't occur to me that it was a big deal. So honestly, I have no idea how I did it. I, I guess I just called them and I asked. But so I go in there, I meet the guy, I shake his hand. Um, I'm 15 and a half years old. And I tell him, I have a business proposition for you. I think I can build the games that you will sell. And my mom has a degree in psychology. So I tell him, I've conferred with a psychologist. And I've come to the conclusion that if you really want kids to learn, they should be playing and having fun. And the learning should happen in the background. They shouldn't be doing like math exercises on the screen. And what he could have said was, no kidding, I've been doing this for 10 years, get out of my office. But instead of saying that, he opens a drawer, he pulls out this document, he blows on it, this cloud of dust like flies off it. And he says, this is a script that I wrote for a game eight years ago. Why don't you build it and we'll sell it? And I tell him, that sounds great, let's do it. And he asks me, how are you going to build it? 
And I had no technical skills, but a friend of mine knew Visual Basic. So I'd heard of Visual Basic. And I tell him, <laughs> I'm going to build it in Visual Basic. I figured maybe my friend could teach me. And he tells me, isn't that like reinventing the wheel? Why not build it in Director? So I tell him, look, if we're going to be working together, then of course I have to adapt your business practices. So I'll build it in Director. And so we shake hands. I go home. I open up Google, which is brand new at the time. And I type in, what is Director? <laughs> and that was, that, that was kind of my first, uh, my first like business initiative. That's, that's, I'm, that's fascinating, yeah, because I'm, I'm just remembering, like, I, you know, I've, yeah, I've built websites with HTML, and it's like, and, and I've done things like, can you do this? Oh, yeah, yeah, and then just frantically Googling what I'd actually said yes to. Yeah, it's, it's, I think. Whenever someone asks an entrepreneur, can you do this, right? Yeah. Is this possible, right? When you ask that to a non-entrepreneur, <laughs> they kind of, they take your request and they compare it against your existing skill set, right? Do I already have the capability to do this? When you ask an entrepreneur, can you do this? What the entrepreneur hears is, given a little bit of time, is it plausible that you could figure out how to do this? Absolutely. And then the answer is often, yeah, sure. I, I, I think I could do that. Yeah, and I'm wondering. I'm wondering sometimes what, um, because like when you said like your dad has the like risk aversity of an accountant, like that kind of sounds like my parents. Right, they still think mm -hmm. I'm nuts. Right, and I wonder where that entrepreneurial gene comes from. Because like in my family, there's nobody who's like that. Well, so know. in my family, actually, there, there are a lot of entrepreneurs in my family. Oh, okay. um, so my grandfather, my dad's dad is an entrepreneur. My, um, my, my dad has three siblings, so a, a brother and two sisters. And all of his siblings are entrepreneurs. My, like, there, there are a lot of entrepreneurs in the family. Um, but I think part of it's personality and part of it is, mm. you know, the way you're raised. And part of it is, is kind of how you choose to look at the world. Um, you know, when I, so I told you I dropped out of high school, um, about a decade ago, I went back to school, I got an MBA. So I have an elementary school diploma and I have an MBA. I have, those are all my academic certifications. Um, and when I did my MBA, which by and large was a huge waste of time and money, but I picked up a few occasional useful insights. Mm. And one of those, I remember in my entrepreneurship class, they were talking about, um, and, and by the way, an entrepreneurship class in general is such a joke. Like the, like a, an entrepreneurship class to entrepreneurship is like a music appreciation class to actually playing music, yep. right? It's, it's, that's the relationship. So that's about the usefulness, but it's like, it's not, it's not learning how to be an entrepreneur. It's, it's like the study of entrepreneurs. But that said, there was an insight that I thought was interesting, which is they, they looked at um, entrepreneurs and risk their risk tolerance. Because we all have this um, perception that entrepreneurs are super risk tolerant. We just love risks. And the research that was done shows this is actually not true. Mm. Entrepreneurs are more risk averse than most people, right? Like entrepreneurs generally, our entrepreneurs don't gamble, for example. It makes us very uncomfortable. Mm. Um, the difference between entrepreneurs and other people is not um, that they're more comfortable with risk. It's that they have a different perception of what is within their ability to influence. Yeah. Right. And, and that's the key difference, right? Like um, I, I'm pretty diligent about, you know, I, I generally don't watch the news. I don't, um, I, I don't have interest in things that are happening in the world that don't influence me and that I don't have 
the possibility to influence, right? Because at that point, it's just trivia. Yeah. So once it becomes relevant to me, like I'm very paying attention mm -hmm. to what's going on in the world with the pandemic now because I have employees and I have students and it's relevant. But by and large, I, I don't want to fill my head with stuff that's going on in the world that has nothing to do with me unless there's something I can do about it. Yeah. Um, I want to focus on what is within my my power to control because that is how we make the world better. And control is a strong word. We can't control. I mean, I have two small children. I can't even control them. Not even close. But you can influence. Within your power to influence is what <laughs> I should say. You can try and influence. <laughs> Yeah, that, I mean, that's, this is this is something that like we're working on with uh, with my son right now. It's like you can't control people. He's like, no, get me milk right now. <laughs> like very imperious. <laughs> oh, that, that, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. Now I think I I like I really resonate with what you're saying about the risk aversion because like when you listen to what you were saying like oh well you didn't just kind of like skip school and leave school and see what you know there was the idea of no no hang on I need to do something more useful with my time mm -hmm. you know and and when people hear my my story of like oh I ditched an IT career moved to a different country started a sewing business that didn't happen overnight you know and I was very diligent with you know like studying mm -hmm. Spanish and this and like I I took almost two years to prepare that transition. So it is very true that it's actually, it's what we also what we like the capacity to learn and that mm -hmm. being comfortable with not knowing right now. Yeah. I mean, the thing about opting out of a traditional path is that if you give someone enough time, they will, they will of necessity then choose their own path. Yeah. Um, I, I do a lot of uh, research and exploration to the world of uh, education reform and alternative education mm. um, for a lot of reasons. But, you know, the, the way that traditional education is done just makes no sense when you consider any of the science we have about how people think yep. and learn. And one of the areas that I find really interesting is the practice and emerging research around um, unschooling. Mm -hmm. So this idea that if you want children to really develop and you want to support them to do so in a healthy way, you don't put them in a classroom, you don't force a curriculum, you just leave them alone and they will find things that they're interested in and they will immerse themselves and they will develop self-direction. It, it, all the research shows that this is how people come out a lot better and a lot smarter. Um, but the big concern that people have is like, what if they just do nothing? And it's like, have you ever known anyone to just sit and do nothing? Um, and, and it's compounded by the fact that That is what we do when we're kind of burned out on another process. So, you know, how, how industrious are most people in the evenings or on the weekends after they've been working hard all week? Often, not very. You just want to sit and veg in front of Netflix because you're tired, yeah. right? But how industrious you are on the odd weekend that you have some downtime is not a measure of how industrious you'll be generally. And so when people are taken out of a traditional schooling environment to you know, unschooled to do things on their own, there's generally a period of de-schooling. Yeah. And during that de-schooling, let's say someone was in, in traditional elementary school for six years, then you take them out, they're going to de-school for like six months. And during those six months, they're just going to sit and watch TV and play games and, and kill time. And it's going to look to their parents like, oh my God, what is happening with this kid? But at some point, and, and you know, the anecdotal correlation is roughly one month of de-schooling for every year of of schooling. Mm. But at some point they, they kind of stop and they're like, okay, this is boring. I, I have interests. <laughs> I have things I want to immerse myself in. Now that I, I reflect on it in hindsight, 
that's kind of what I did, right? Like, yep. you know, I had, you know, exactly eight years of school and it mm -hmm. took, you know, a year, year and a half before I was like, okay, this is silly. I can, I could do something worthwhile <laughs> with my time. Yeah. And, and actually it's also something you see a lot when people like they win the lottery and, or like make a lot of money all of a sudden it's like, Oh, I'm going to retire. You know, there's this like, mm -hmm. when I have a lot of money, then I'm going to go and sit at the beach and, uh, you know, and just chill mm -hmm. out. And usually you'll find, or especially when people sell their company and then all of a sudden, yeah, I'm just sick of it all. And then they do exactly that. They hang out, they wedge out for a few months. And the next thing you know is they started another company somewhere. There's like, they're basically back in the game because they don't want to spend their life sitting at the beach, watching, doing nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There, there's a big sense. difference between being, being at the office because you have to. Mm -hmm. And then being out of it and having the freedom and realizing that, okay, maybe, maybe I want to do something. Maybe it's the same thing. Maybe it's a different thing. But, you know, self-direction is really one of the most important strengths and skills that a human being can develop. Yeah. And I think there is a, it reminds me of a project. There's, there's a, an award. I don't, I can't remember what it was called, but like basically here in Spain where they, where this, teacher won this award for being like extremely successful and he shared the way he taught or the whole like the school and they would work on projects and they had this mm -hmm. beautiful pro project um to build a doggy a doggy rescue center right so that was the task to build mm -hmm. a rescue center for street dogs and you know so people could adopt the dog so they had to and it all came in you know, they had to calculate the installation and there was your mathematics and they had to figure out what to feed the dogs. There was your biology. Then they had to sell the project to get, you know, internationally, they had to prepare, it, you know, to do it all in English. And, and it was amazing how engaged those kids were. And like, there mm -hmm. were some who were, they, they asked about that teacher years later and every single one said like, that was just the most amazing time to learn because it was also, it had, they could see the purpose of it all. You know, it wasn't just, you know, exercises where you just like. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and there's, it, it, it leads to resourcefulness. It leads to yeah. ownership. I mean, this is the reason I think why entrepreneurs are so, so capable and resourceful. It's because the, act of being an entrepreneur forces you to develop these muscles, yeah. right? We're, as we're recording this, we're, you know, in the middle of a global pandemic. And I spoke to my, uh, my, my coach like a week after that happened. And, you know, we had a big event that was happening three weeks later. We had to do this massive pivot and bring it virtual. Um, you know, my community was looking for leadership. So I had to, to step up there as well. And I spoke with my coach and said, you know, it's nice to see that you're, you're doing so much. Because all of my corporate clients are just frozen. They're paralyzed. Oh. And it's funny. All my entrepreneurship, uh, entrepreneur clients are like, you know, they're in gear and they're moving. I was like, well, yeah, because, you know, you're used to a lot of things being figured out for you as, as uh, someone yeah. working in the corporate world. As an entrepreneur, it's like, oh, you know, my whole business, my whole life has been turned upside down. That's like every Tuesday. So <laughs> I guess I'm used to it. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. What's new, I think. And. And also having the autonomy to actually make a change, you mm -hmm. know, not to have that, well, I'm now at the mercy of somebody else's cap capacity of, you know, making decent decisions under the circumstances. That's yeah. so true. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. Um, 
I'm really like fascinated by the whole topic of learning and how to learn and, and, um, and how that translates in the vehicle. Like, I'm, I mean, I don't, I don't know. It, it feels like the online courses are the vehicle for that, aren't they? So how well, they very well can be. Hmm. Um, so, so here's the thing as we think about a transition to online courses. Hmm. Um, the first generation of online courses mostly were terrible. And the reason for that is that, you know, whenever we build something, we start with a frame of reference, right? We start with a template in our head. And so the frame of reference that you and I and everyone listening to this grew up with for education is elementary school and then high school and then maybe, you know, uh, university education, grad school, et cetera. And, you know, that is a very suboptimal structure of education designed for specific goals that are generally not our goals today as learners, right? You know, elementary school and high school were designed to create factory workers. That's not what most of us want to grow up to be today. Um, and it does a good job of doing that, and it leverages the the advantages of its medium, mm. right? So, you know, being in, uh, th there's this great line out of John Medina, who's a neuroscientist, out of his book, Brain Rules, saying that if you asked a bunch of the world's leading um, cognitive behavioral theorists and uh, behavioral science specialists and uh, psychiatrists, like all these leading experts who understand hu how the human brain works. You ask them to design the world's worst working environment and the world's worst learning environment. They would design the cubicle and the classroom. Yep. Right? So it's very suboptimal. Um, and it has certain advantages, right? So you know, when you're in person in a class, you have this rich, immersive experience, right? That's something you don't have virtually. But then you take this template, right, your, your frame of reference, which is for an in-person experience, and you say, how can I do the same thing online? Mm. And what you end up with is none of the advantages of being in person, yeah. but all the disadvantages of the structure that was designed for in-person, right? Mm. So you get a poor man's version of a learning experience that wasn't very good to begin with. And, you know, if, if you examine a lot of these underlying assumptions, you realize how nonsensical it is, right? So case in point, right? We um, generally expect that a lesson is something that happens for 45 or an hour or maybe 90 minutes long and it happens once a week. Now, why is that the case? It has nothing to do with the optimal length of a lesson for learning or frequency for, for absorption of content. It has to do with the fact that if the teacher and all the students have to synchronize their calendars and be in the same place at the same time, you're not yeah. going to do that for five minutes. <laughs> and you need a way for them to remember that, okay, every Tuesday at three o'clock, yeah. right? And yet that has become the rhythm that's stuck, right? Mm -hmm. in, in, uh, in general uh, elementary and high school education, there's this assumption that the optimal class size is 25 students to one teacher, mm. right? Ouch. So where does that come from, right? That comes from Maimonides in the 12th century, which is ironic because even in the 12th century, he wasn't leading a typical classroom, <laughs> right? And, and yet there are these things that like they get into the zeitgeist for whatever reason and they stick. So if we try to just take a learning experience and say, how can I do the same thing online? It's not going to be very good. But if we take a step back, if instead of saying, okay, this is what I would do in person, how do I take it online? You ask yourself, this is what I would do in person. What am I trying to accomplish by doing that? Mm -hmm. And you don't say, how do I do this thing online? You say, how, do, how could I accomplish what I'm trying to accomplish online? You yeah. can get to some very interesting things.
Right, I'll give you a good, very recent example. So we just, we have our big event, hundreds of people usually fly in and we had to take it virtual on three weeks notice. And I, I, I deliver a very interactive experience when I'm on stage. There's a lot of, okay, discuss with your neighbor, discuss with the person sitting next to you. There's a lot of stuff like that. Now, you know, when I've got hundreds of people on a Zoom call, I can't do discuss with your neighbor, right? That just doesn't work. But instead of saying, well, how could I do a version of discuss with your neighbor? I take a step back and I ask myself, what am I trying to accomplish with discuss with your neighbor, right? Is it a deeper review of the content? Is it a different perspective? Is it a feeling of connection? Because the reality is that there are a lot of things that discuss with your neighbor is actually not optimal for. It's just that when you're in a room full of hundreds of people, Hmm. discuss with your neighbor is one choice, discuss with your table is the other choice. And that's it. Those are all the choices. I can't like shuffle you to talk to everyone in the room without it becoming chaos. Mm. Right. So, you know, we have a very limited option set when we're there in person and we say, well, this must be optimal because what we're used to. Yeah. So if you back away from how do I do discuss with your neighbor and we move towards, okay, now I'm trying to create a feeling of connection in this new experience. What's another way of doing that? Now I'm trying to get them to reflect more deeply about the work. What's another way of getting them to do that? And there, there are really interesting things that you can do if you add that extra step. And uh, now we're kind of getting to the second generation of online courses where people are taking that extra step. And we are seeing some really powerful and transformative learning experiences. Yeah, that makes that makes so much sense. I think that step taking that step back, I think that's always where the key is. Like no matter what, what you actually mm-hmm. do, it's, um, yeah, I think that really makes the difference. It's almost like, you know, the fly who, who tries to get out the door and when you're so mm-hmm. close to the window, you just kind of keep buzzing and they don't see. If they kind of go a little bit back, they can actually see and Bingo. exit just like in a different, in a slightly different angle. Yeah, it makes all the sense in the world. So I know you've got a book coming out. Tell me I about do. that. So the book is called Teach Your Gift, and the subtitle is How Coaches, Consultants, Authors, Speakers, and Experts Create Online Course Business Success in 2020 and Beyond. And, you know, this is my, depending on how you count, it's like my third or fourth book Mm -hmm. about online courses and online course businesses. So I've been in this space for quite a long time. And the reason I wrote the book is that I found myself lately having a lot of conversations with exactly the kind of people that I love to work with. And this is an interesting shift, Mm. right? Going back like seven years, the people who were looking at building online courses, by and large, there were exceptions, but there are people who were like, you know, how can I make money online? What's an alternative to, to my day job? And now that it's become more mainstream, the people who are coming to me with this interest, they have successful coaching and consulting practices. They're recognized experts in their field. That's great. That's exactly who should be creating online courses. And so I would say, great, tell me more. What are you considering? And they tell me their plan. And they would share a plan that is essentially based on a playbook that is five years out of date. (laughs) Because the world has moved quickly. And as the landscape of online courses has become so saturated, as there's so much demand, there have been a lot of people coming in and saying, well, if you want to learn how to create online courses, I did it once, I can teach you. (laughs) And they're coming in not with a deep experience or expertise. And so they're saying, this is what I did that one time. Let me teach you how to do it. And they don't know the boundary conditions. They don't know who that doesn't work for. And often they're not aware of the fact that the world has just changed. And so I wrote Teach Your Gift to really help people understand what does the opportunity for online courses look like today? 
right? If you have expertise in your field, if you know something that would be valuable for others to learn, what is the opportunity for you? How can you seize it? What are the steps you need to take? All of which are based on what's working today. So that's that's why I wrote the book. And and anyone who's listening to this, yeah, you know, the book is out. You can go to Amazon. You can buy it. You know, the joke is that the best way to buy books is in bulk. So you can buy lots of copies if you want. Um, but we're doing a whole bunch of stuff around the book launch with like, you know, bonus content and free free access in certain time windows. So um, the best place to go would be teachyourgiftbook.com. And you'll find the very best thing that we can give to you right now in terms of the content of the book and the ideas that are that are covered there. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much. I'm obviously going to put the link in the in the show notes for people to, to um, you know, to basically get get and get that and find find out more about that because I think that is really that shift in the way we teach and learn. I think it's long overdue, and um, and yeah, it's fascinating to to hear you talk about that. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, and thank you for having me on the show. This has been a lot of fun and a real privilege. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share your experience and your stories and, and, um, and your gift with us. Very much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Passion Business Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss the next one.